Welcome to the Editor's Choice podcast for the June edition of Practical Neurology. I'm Amy Ross-Russell. I'm a neurology trainee in Southampton. And today it's a real pleasure to join colleagues on the other side of the world to discuss the June 22 Editor's Choice article, which focuses on diagnosis and management of posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome. I really look forward to recording these podcasts. For me, they're a relaxed tutorial on some some really brilliantly chosen topics and and a chance to fill holes in my knowledge. And we know that we have about 3,000 listeners to each of these, but we don't actually know what you think of them. So if you've enjoyed this, or, or maybe more importantly, if there's a way you think we could improve these podcasts, we'd love you to leave us a review on the iTunes page or let us know what, what you think through our Twitter feeds. I'm at Amy Ross Russell or the journal at Practical New Role. Um, and and uh, let us know what you think and whether you enjoy them. In addition to this podcast, there's also an Editor's Highlights podcast, which is released for each edition of the journal. And I'd really encourage you to have a listen to that. They're a wonderful tour through the highlights of the latest edition uh, of Practical Neurology and a reminder of of just how rich the journal is with applicable and, and practical clinical advice. So today we're going to talk about PRES or Posterior Reversible Encephalopathy Syndrome. And here to educate me are Dr. James Triplett, who is a staff specialist neurologist and neurophysiologist at Concord Hospital and a senior clinical lecturer at the University of Sydney. Hello, James. Hi, Amy. Thank you for having me. Welcome. Uh, And Todd Hardy, who's a senior staff specialist neurologist at Concord Hospital, co-director of the MS Clinic at the Brain and Mind Centre and a clinical associate professor in medicine at the University of Sydney. Todd, you're very welcome. Uh, Thanks uh, also for having me, Amy. Well, thank you both for joining and for such a brilliant review. It's a real example of why I love love reading practical neurology because it's it's very relevant, it's very practical, and you've also really kindly structured it perfectly for a podcast because you've even titled your paragraphs as questions. So, so thanks for that. So, we're going to talk through a bit about what Prez is, how you recognise, how you manage it, and maybe talk about some of the particular ways that we can help our patients and colleagues when it occurs. So, Todd, we'll kick off with you. I wondered if I could just start by asking what you mean when you say PRES. What is it? Uh, Posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome, uh, or PRES, is a clinico-radiological diagnosis uh, that's based on a combination of typical clinical features and risk factors uh, and supported by MRI brain findings. Its classical presentation is a combination of subacute onset uh, symptoms like visual loss, headache, altered mental function and seizures, but there may, there may also include other focal deficits like weakness or sensory disturbance or speech disturbance. And neurological symptoms can be multiple or occur in isolation, and they may evolve over the course of the acute phase of the disease. And PRESS has many underlying causes and may result from medical treatments, such as chemotherapy or other immunosuppressive therapy, or may develop as part of a PRESS-associated medical condition, and these include uh, autoimmune disorders and uh, eclampsia. It's an uncommon disorder. Uh, I'm not aware of any data looking at incidence and prevalence across the population as a whole, but it's very very common in patients with certain conditions, such as eclampsia. Uh, It can occur in as many as 98% of patients with eclampsia, and much less common in patients with renal failure or autoimmune disorders, in that we're looking at maybe in the order of 0.4 to 6%. Uh, it's more common in women, even when correcting for eclampsia uh, as being a leading cause. So a classical presentation then, to put it in perspective, 
might be a patient with a, a renal transplant on tacrolimus who has elevated blood pressure and then presents with a seizure and encephalopathy and has typical changes of subcortical edema in the posterior circulation of the brain on MRI. Uh, or another presentation might be a woman in the immediate postpartum period who develops headache and hemianopia and has edema involving one or both occipital lobes on MRI. Thanks. That's that's really, really helpful. Are there any sort of defined diagnostic criteria or is it much more a combination of sort of the imaging and the story and putting everything together? Yeah, it's uh, it's largely resisted, I think, having a definitive diagnostic criteria. So it, it really is uh, more a clinical impression based on the presentation of the patients and hopefully supported by radiological findings but it's, it is a little bit resistant to a diagnostic criteria just because there are so many different ways it can present and so many different ways it can be, uh, be triggered. And Todd, I completely agree with what you've said so far, but with you know, the more in-depth radiological studies that have been performed in press, it's, it's been shown that it's, it's not always posterior. And so again, Amy, I think that's part of the reason why it doesn't have a set clinical criteria is because it can present in multiple different ways with with a similar radiological appearance but affecting different areas of the brain. James, how important are those risk factors? Does everybody have a, a vulnerability or a risk factor or can it actually happen to anyone? Not everyone does have a, have a risk factor. Um, and as Todd's already mentioned, there are certain conditions that the development of press is, is more likely. We've historically been told that most patients are hypertensive or have hypertension as, as part of their history, but there's somewhere between 20 and 30% of patients who are normotensive throughout their entire episode of PRESS. So it is important uh, when uh, examining or involved in a patient who has subacute confusion, visual disturbance and possibly seizures to have a good look at their medical history, particularly the medications they are on and their past history to identify any of these risk factors. Yeah, thank you. And and you you hint on there and, and again in the paper, the importance of sort of being alert to the possibility. And it struck me that this is a condition that really reminds us how important those other parts of the history are. There's a fantastic, for listeners, there's a fantastic box one which which summarises the main causes of prayers and the, the drugs to be aware of and things like that. James, how do you think about that when you're taking a history? How do you make sure you don't miss any of those triggers in a history? Yeah, thank you. So the, the table there um, does describe numerous conditions and medications associated with press. So I think it's important in these patients to take a, a thorough history, particularly looking at both general conditions that have been associated with press, including things like hypertension, like we've talked upon, but also sepsis, renal failure, eclampsia in young females who may be pregnant, um, and then also a history of other conditions such as bone marrow transplant or malignancy. Once looking through the general conditions, it's then also, again, asking for a history of autoimmune conditions. And again, though some of the more systemic autoimmune conditions like rheumatoid arthritis and lupus are associated with press. There are also cases associated with just Crohn's disease as well. In terms of your history, also a thorough medication history, uh, because the vast majority of cytotoxic and immunosuppressive medications have been associated with press in the past. 
And it can be similar to, as Todd discussed earlier, it can be difficult in patients who are on immunotherapy for an underlying autoimmune condition to work out what's the trigger. Is it the lupus or is it the uh, medications the patient's receiving for the lupus that has precipitated this episode? Yeah, that's exactly what I was just going to ask. Do you think it's the medicine or the condition? But I guess it's really hard to know. It is hard to know. And I th- I think, you know, again, looking at the patient as a whole, if there's other features that their autoimmune condition is not being adequately controlled, then that's possibly the cause. But if, if you're uncertain, then ceasing the medication, particularly for a short period of time, may be helpful to see if there is a clinical improvement. Yeah. I think, I think sometimes as well, patients can present with press as the first uh, manifestation of an autoimmune disease as well. So sometimes they're not actually on treatment for their autoimmune disease. So I think that helps you in that, in that instance. Uh, certainly I've seen patients present with their first uh, presentation of, of lupus uh, with press and renal impairment as a result of lupus nephritis. So it certainly is um, a condition which can be associated either either with autoimmune disease or immunosuppression. Obviously, it's a bit more difficult if a patient has a known autoimmune disease and is on immunosuppression to know what the cause might be. But I suppose you look at the overall activity of the autoimmune disease and whether it's controlled or poorly controlled, and that might give you a clue. How important is it that we identify that underlying cause? Yeah, I think it is. Uh, it's obviously very important to try and identify the cause. Um, what you want to do is is identify what might be the trigger so that you can uh, address it and therefore hopefully put the patient back into remission, get that reversible part uh, of press happening. So if, if there's a particular immunotherapy or chemotherapy that we're receiving, for example, uh, then you uh, would stop that and withdraw it. Uh, if there is an immune autoimmune condition which is causing the problem, then you would treat that. If they're very hypertensive, um, then you would treat their hypertension. And so normally when you address whatever you can find is the uh, underlying provoking uh, trigger for press, um, then people tend to recover. Um, so, yeah, I think it's very important that, we try, that you try to identify it and, and then uh, address whatever that trigger is. Thanks very much. I think we'll come back to to management in just a minute. But I wanted, James, I wondered if we could just talk about imaging, which in in my experience has often been when the diagnosis is first suggested, especially if the patient's maybe not seen a neurologist yet. You've got some beautiful pictures in figure one highlighting the the sort of typical changes in press. I just wondered if you could talk us through what we're looking for on the radiology. Thank you, Amy. Yeah, we tried to put obviously two pictures in, in the paper, one of a typical or a more typical uh, radiological features, figure one, and then figure two with a atypical radiological findings. In figure one, we see prominent cortical and subcortical white matter T2 flare hyperintensities that are primarily involving the bilateral occipital, but also lesser involvement of the left anterior parietal lobe and some patchy changes in the right cerebellar hemisphere. These T2 flare abnormalities are also associated by diffusion weighted imaging hyperintensities and a hyperintense apparent diffusion coefficient, which is in keeping with vasogenic edema and obviously different to the cytotoxic edema that we would see in a stroke with restricted diffusion in those circumstances. The figure one also shows a small area of blooming in the left occipital lobe, um, which is in keeping with the petechial microhemorrhage. And interestingly, microhemorrhages are seen in over 60% of patients with press 
who do undergo repeated MRI assessments. The T2 flare and also the vasogenic edema changes seen are thought to represent leaky vessels due to endothelial dysfunction and also a disruption of the blood-brain barrier. As mentioned, the second figure reveals similar radiological abnormalities, but these are involved in an atypical um, and, I guess, central anatomical pattern with predominant involvement of the cerebellar hemispheres, brainstem, and the corpus callosum. I touched on it earlier, but radiologically, a prior occipital pattern like seen in figure one is seen in the majority of cases of press, probably 50% either just occipital or occipital predominant uh, findings. But there's cases of a frontal predominant pattern uh, making up another quarter of the cases. And the remaining 20% are atypical cases uh, with either a central or brainstem variant, and even in some instances, involvement of the spinal cord. And presumably those mirror the clinical presentations and the, the sort of wide clinical spectrum of presentations. Yeah, exactly right. And that's why we typically see patients with visual disturbance is due to that predominant posterior um, and occipital lobe involvement. Um, but if you have a patient that has an anterior predominant press and no occipital involvement, they may present with confusion, seizures and other focal neurological signs with intact vision. Yeah. And Todd, I think that, that leads us quite nicely into just thinking about what is what is going on, that the actual pathophysiology. Do we know what's going on in the blood vessels? Do we know why they've become leaky? Is, do we even know that the pathology is in fact in the blood vessels? Yeah. So, I mean, when I think about the underlying mechanism of disease, I, I, I first of all think, I wonder if press should be thought of as a syndrome that occurs as a result of a failure of cerebral blood pressure autoregulation. Unfortunately, the evidence is a bit limited about how and why press arises, and no single mechanism explains press in all cases. But the fact that there is vasogenic edema characteristically does suggest that there is a temporary breakdown in the blood-brain barrier, but how and why this should occur isn't known. A leading theory is that there's a, a rapid development of hypertension which exceeds the upper limit of cerebral blood flow autoregulation and causes hyperperfusion, and that there's blood-brain barrier breakdown as a result of that with interstitial extravasation of plasma and macromolecules. And endothelial dysfunction might be important in all of this too. Uh, the vascular endothelium can produce cytokines such as endothelin-1, during periods of hyperperfusion, and this could alter the expression of vascular endothelial molecules such as ICAM-1, leads to the release of VEGF, and then this could result in loosening of the integrity of tight junctions in the blood-brain barrier. There is some brain biopsy data to support this type of mechanism with changes in some of these uh, endothelial molecules. But overall, it is difficult to be certain as to exactly what's going on. And potentially not just one single mechanism, but, but different depending on your, your risk factors and your causative agents. It might be, yeah. It might be that we're seeing uh, some common clinical phenotypes, seizures and cephalopathy and those types of things, and some edema on the scans. But the way uh, that uh, those things are arising might be through slightly different mechanisms, depending on the insult. 
You've got another fantastic table, which I'm going to highlight to listeners as one to to take a photo of or or stick on your office pin board, which is the main differential diagnoses of prayers and and outlines some of the the ways in which they differ and the things that would highlight one or two of those being more important. James, I just wondered if you could take us through what you think the most important differentials to consider or or perhaps the main conditions that mimic or are mimicked by prayers that we need to, to make sure we think about in these patients. Yes, Amy. I think there's there's two ways to to look at this. Obviously, it depends on when the neurologist in, is involved in the patient's care. First and foremost, if you're seeing someone with you know an acute workup with the confusion, visual disturbance, and possibly seizures, the things that you really want to get a history for and to try and determine as possible differentials and try and exclude are things like viral or autoimmune encephalopathies or a dual venous sinus thrombosis. And in patients with previous radiation, uh, radiation stroke-like migraine attacks. If, however, as a neurologist, you come later, and as you've mentioned, you know, your first interaction is based on the MRI findings, some of the other things to consider would be uh, intracranial malignancies such as glymatosis cerebri. And obviously repeated imaging over time and progression would suggest that as the underlying cause. One differential that, that can occur and that can sometimes even overlap with press is reversible cerebrovascular constriction syndrome, or RCVS. And these patients often present with a thunderclap or recurrent thunderclap headaches associated with uh, neurological disturbances. And so that's something also that, that we should think about. That's really helpful. Thank you. That's that's reminded me to because you mentioned in the uh, in the article that the use of formal angiography of DSA in in investigating these patients and and perhaps that if RCVS is is on your differentials, that's maybe a more useful time to look uh, in a bit more detail at the vessels. Yeah, a, a formal angiographic work evaluation and a workup of press. I think should be considered on a on a case by case basis. I don't think it's necessary in every circumstance, but if there is a history of you know, recurrent thunderclap headaches, um, or there's CT angiogram or MRI angiogram of a possible intracranial arteriopathy, it would be worth pursuing. Some of the the previous studies looking at the overlap between press and RCVS actually suggest that. of patients with RCVS have some features of press on imaging and conversely that large numbers of patients with with press do have some evidence of vasoconstriction or a focal vasculopathy um, on a formal DSA. Continuing on a practical note, let's, let's come back to talking about management there's another fabulous table, uh, table two, which is going straight up behind my desk as soon as I'm back, which outlines the practicalities of acutely managing both blood pressure and seizures. James, are there particular drugs to use or avoid um, or that work better in prayers? In terms of medications, unfortunately, as we've discussed, it's quite a heterogeneous uh, syndrome. Um, so there's been no randomised control trials to give you know, definitive data on the best management uh, or course of management for press. I think the key point for management, though, is initial prompt recognition of press. 
and if needed, transfer to an intensive care setting for, for ongoing uh, blood pressure management and monitoring of blood pressure control. Obviously, in the, the cases where hypertension is noted, we should try and reduce that at a moderate rate um, initially to avoid cerebral hypoperfusion. But the medications that we use may also depend on hospital availability um, and the location of the patient, depending on which country we live in. However, first-line antihypertensive therapies, um, which have been reported previously, include nicardipine and libidolol. Nitroglycerine theoretically has a risk of aggravating increased intracranial pressure. So some authors have suggested against that, and we've also discussed that here. But again, in certain institutions around the world, nitroglycerine is used quite regularly because of the ability to up titrate and down titrate doses quickly. Todd, let's say we've started our, our acute blood pressure management and, and they're doing well. I think James has already suggested some of these patients need additional help and intensive care support. When, when do we need to think about getting that help and when do we need to phone a friend? Uh, yeah, it's, it's a good question. Look, I think vigilance is needed even once treatment is commenced as patients may deteriorate further before they turn the corner. They may need a period of time in HDU or ITU to be supported through the clinical nadir and for close monitoring for titration of antihypertensives and anticonvulsants. Uh, so I think the simple answer, the practical answer, if you like, is to involve ITU whenever you're concerned uh, that a patient is too encephalopathic to be managed on the neurology ward. Uh, example, if they're becoming tundered, their airway is threatened, uh, if they're in status epilepticus, uh, or if their BP is just too difficult to control in the ward. As a rule, I think it's always better to consult ITU sooner rather than later when you have a sick patient. Yes, I like that. That's a good rule of thumb. It's a pretty scary scenario to when you look at the statistics. You've said 70% of people go to ITU, about 40% might need ventilation. And there's a, a much higher mortality than I had appreciated of, of about 19%. What do we tell patients and their families when we're talking about this as a diagnosis? You know, how optimistic can we be about the reversibility? Or actually, do we need to be saying this is something very serious? And is there anything that helps us to sort of guide those conversations? Yeah, so I think, you know, and press can also recur as the other thing as well. And I suppose you have to talk about that with families as well. It can occur in about five or recur in about five to 10 percent of cases. And it probably occurs more commonly in those patients with uncontrolled hypertension uh, compared with patients who have other causes for it, such as immunosuppressant therapy. Anyway, I think it's reasonable to tell families that PRESS can recur uncommonly and that it's important that the risk factors for PRESS uh, in a particular patient are dealt with to minimise the chance of recurrence. And also, you know, early on, the first time around it's happening, to forewarn them about the fact that... Uh, that their loved one can deteriorate before they get better. Uh, they might require ICU support or even sometimes neurosurgical input. I think sometimes if you, without trying to necessarily alarm families, if you paint the picture that, um, that things may get a little bit worse, then when, if they do get worse, then you've in, on some level prepared the family. Uh, unfortunately, though, there are no real sp uh, specific parameters that can help with uh, overall pros prognostication that we know of, apart from, I guess, the fact that if uh, if people have severe hemorrhage or they are developing uh, neurosurgical type complications, then uh, you know in those situations their prognosis is going to be a bit poorer. 
Yeah, thank you. And, and and James, what about the longer term outcomes? Presumably we see them again for, for follow-up. Do you routinely ask for any particular tests or imaging? I routinely don't ask for any uh, follow-up routine tests or imaging. Um, but when following up, there are some things I do try and clarify with the patient. And as, as Todd has just suggested, if we've identified the possible or likely cause of the episode press to make sure that those medications you know, are clearly documented that they were the cause of this and the patient is not taking those again. There is an increased risk of persistent seizures, however, with patients who previously had press. And so that's a low risk of long-term unprovoked seizures. But again, that's something that I do clarify with patients is have they had further uh, seizures and if so at that point would consider long-term antiepileptic therapy. And otherwise the recommendation would be to withdraw that therapy, would it? Yes, during the acute phase, yeah. Yeah, I, I would add to that that, yeah, there's very little evidence about guiding withdrawal of any convulsions. But recurrent seizures are rare after resolution of the acute part of the syndrome. Uh, unless patients are going to have another episode or relapse with press. So it probably is reasonable to withdraw any convulsants several weeks after presentation in most patients. Uh, but ultimately, this has to be a discussion between the patient and clinician based on their specific set of circumstances. Finally, I've got to ask, and I'm going to put it to both of you. We've talked about imaging and the fact that PREZ is not always posterior and the outcomes and the fact that it's not always reversible and the fact that encephalopathy isn't always the most prominent feature um, and that there's a, a big clinical spectrum. Do you think PREZ is what we should be calling it? <laughs> yeah, so I, I mean, I think you, you make a valid point that the name is slightly misleading, as you say, because the parts of the brain affected are always posterior. The fact that there's mortality with the condition means that it's not always reversible and that encephalopathy doesn't have to necessarily be a feature. But trying to come up with a, a better name is fraught because of the many presentations and risks that can lead to the syndrome. Uh, so trying to incorporate all of them into the name uh, is tricky. I think posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome is a reasonable name to stick with as it does describe a few key aspects of the syndrome, at least as it applies to most patients as long as we understand that the words and the acronym are not set in stone. If there is a better name to communicate more of the nuances of the syndrome, and I don't think it will be me that will coin it, as I can't see a way to do it in a way that communicates the variability of the condition any better. So I think press uh, as a term is here to stay for a while. James, you don't have a, a strikingly better uh, suggestion for us? No, I don't. But I think one of the key points is it's posterior predominant that, that would be the one change if I was ever to be allowed to change a, an acronym that had been around for quite a while, that it's posterior predominant but not always posterior in location. Um, but as you know, we've discussed over the, the last little while and in agreement with Todd, I can't think of another way to describe this unless you start getting down into you know, minute pathophysiological abnormalities and saying that it's an impairment of cerebral autoregulation, but I think press is a appropriate title for the condition and so I think we stick with that for the time being. I suppose it's only really relevant to change it if it's clinically helpful and, and as you say it, it gives us what we need clinically. It feels like perhaps we'll we'll be learning a lot more about it over time and perhaps with new imaging techniques or better understanding of what's going on. 
Yeah, it might be as we do understand the pathophysiology a bit better, we might be able to apply a better name related to the pathophysiology, I guess. So that could be something that, that happens in time. If you could understand one bit better or if you could push people to understand one of the things better or to focus their, their research attention, where would you send them? Well, yeah, from my point of view, I still think that the pathophysiology is important to understand. There, you know, It's not really well uh, worked out. Why do some people uh, you know, with autoimmune conditions or who are on immunotherapies or chemotherapy uh, or who have these sorts of risk factors for breast, why do some of them, or hypertension even, uh, why do some of them develop it and not others? Um, you know, what is it about these people that they can develop press and that it can lead to you know, all sorts of morbidity for them? If we had some way of knowing a bit more about that, we might even be able to be more careful in um, monitoring people with hypertension or with renal impairment uh, or be careful which drugs we selected for certain people uh, if we're going to treat their cancers or their autoimmune conditions. Um, so, yeah, for me, the big the big knowledge gap in this area is around the mechanism and pathophysiology of what's going on. Yeah, and I really love your suggestion that we could tailor our, our therapies to people if we can understand that a bit better. Well, thank you both so much for your time, your, your very clear and, and very practical uh, answers and, and a really wonderful, uh, wonderful article that I certainly will be referring back to many times. Just a reminder to those of you listening that you can download that paper from the link in the description below the podcast. And it, it really is worth a, a thorough read through uh, and keep those fantastic tables for reference, uh, particularly maybe for your next on call. For more of these podcasts, search for PM Podcasts on Apple, Google or Spotify and subscribe to get those directly to your device each month. Please let us know your thoughts by, by leaving us a review if you have the time. Uh, and if you're on Twitter, follow at Practical New Role for more clinical pearls and snippets from the journal. I've had a really, really brilliant time talking to both of you today. Thank you so much, James and Todd. And, and thanks for a wonderful paper. Thanks a lot, Amy, for the opportunity.